Good morning and good afternoon, everyone. My name is Andrea Armeni. I am the Executive Director of Transform Finance um, and a lead convener of the Transform Finance Investor Network. I'm delighted to have you join us today for this webinar on the Movement for Black Lives economic platform and the role that investors can uh, play in, uh, in engaging with the, with the platform. Uh, we will be joined today by uh, Kathy Albisa from the National Economic and Social Rights Initiative, or NESRI, and Rashad Jamal Booney from the Black Youth Project 100, uh, known as uh, BYP 100. Uh, Kathy is the executive director. She's a constitutional and human rights lawyer with roots in the welfare uh, rights movement and reproductive justice. And Nestri, her organization is a movement support organization that works with uh, community groups uh, seeking structural change through building new models for longstanding problems of inequity and social justice. Um, she played a crucial role within the, as part of Nestri within the um, development of the economic platform of the movement for black lives under the guidance of the M4BL leadership in the, for the development of that vision. And Rashad from Detroit is passionate about technology, social justice, and their intersection. Uh, he's a graduate of the University of Michigan, and he has been working uh, as uh, the organizing co-chair for the Detroit chapter of the Black Youth uh, Project 100, which recently started a campaign against the displacement of uh, black Detroiters entitled Rooted in the Deep. Um, very much looking forward to hearing from them, so I will keep my introduction very short. Uh, I just want to contextualize this uh, webinar in the work that we've been doing at Transform Finance throughout, uh, um, throughout the life of the organization and within the work of the, of the network in trying to build a bridge between the world of finance and the world of social justice and looking at it in a few different ways. One is how we can deepen our understanding and the practice of our role that we can play as investors, uh, how we can move from uh, um, partially better to transformatively better approaches in the deployment of capital, but also looking at it uh, from, a, uh, from a justice perspective in terms of creating a space for those practitioners that because of the work that they do in the social justice arena, um, need a, an opportunity to engage with the world of capital that, as we have seen, touches pretty much every issue of social justice out there. And in doing so, we want to quite explicitly lift up voices that have uh, traditionally been marginalized by finance and not been included in this, uh, in this conversation. Um, and in doing so, we're hoping that we can start shifting the narrative a little bit around um, uh, around what finance can do and how finance can intersect with communities. Um, seeing, for example, as came up in a tremendous webinar yesterday uh, around the vision for black lives uh, for Divest Invest, what does it mean to divest? And who gets to decide what it means to divest? Should it be the, um, the investor groups only or should it be in conjunction and in collaboration with those organizations, with those communities that are most impacted by decisions to divest and to invest. Um, so 
a part of this, as we explored over the last uh, few webinars where we have touched on racial justice, is uh, really to see from the investor perspective, where does race show up in our decisions and what can we do about that? So this goes beyond just deciding how we can allocate the capital, but it's a, a learning path that wants to look at what new approaches can be, uh, wants to be a little bit more systemic, going beyond just uh, single interventions in that, in that area. As I've mentioned on, uh, uh, on a couple of the prior calls, uh, for example, we want to systematize this into a project that we are in the process of launching now of uh, analyzing the intersection of racial justice and entire investment portfolio uh, across asset classes. So seeing where race shows up and how investors that are concerned with racial justice can um, can change their practices to be better attuned with uh, positive racial justice outcomes. Um, lastly, uh, this is not just about the role that private investors uh, or institutional investors even can do in terms of their own capital allocations, but it expands really to uh, the role that they can play in the context of uh, policy setting and budget allocations where a lot of the implications for racial justice are ultimately raised. Uh, and uh, as we'll see, and as many of you are familiar with, a lot of the work that the Movement for Black Lives has been doing uh, has been um, also at that intersection with uh, budgeting decisions, moving capital from criminalization into restorative justice and alternative uh, processes as well. So really seeing finance as a, as a broad space and seeing our role as going beyond just setting the best examples and deploying capital, but also affecting the community more broadly. Lastly, this is something that affects uh, um, and, and has implications for, for a portfolio in general. We had a fantastic webinar recently with uh, uh, activists to look at the issue of municipal bond finance and, uh, and, and racial justice. So that's something that would fall within uh, our fixed income considerations. There are also projects much more at the, um, at the direct deal level that uh, uh, might be of interest to, the, um, uh, to investors that care about racial justice, such as the Restore Oakland initiative by the Ella Baker Center for Human Rights and Restaurant Opportunity Centers United, um, which tries to combine uh, restorative justice programs with uh, worker training opportunities and, uh, um, and actual real estate uh, opportunities for, uh, for the community in, uh, in Oakland. So let's see how this all fits within the um, broader, more holistic vision for economic justice that the Movement for Black Lives has put forward. We're grounding this in, their, um, in the economic platform that was released last year and again, um, since Kathy was involved uh, in working with the Movement for Black Lives leadership in setting up this, uh, um, this platform. I will turn it over to her to, to help us understand it better and help us understand what role we can play in supporting it. Thank you so much, Kathy, for joining us today. Thank you all. Uh, let me see if I can make this, this slide move. Are you gonna, I am now the presenter, great. So thank you everyone for for joining this conversation with Rashad and I. Um, 
there are lots of people that were involved in, in the development of the platform, and we were just very lucky to be able to play a particular support role in helping with some of the drafting and the research. And BYP 100, who's represented here by Rashad, has also played a key role both in idea development and in organizing people to understand in communities what the, what, what the vision of the platform can mean for black liberation. So we're really excited that you want to be part of this conversation. And it is a conversation, right? Because there aren't clear prescriptive actions for everyone to take that are, that's going to fix the depth of the problem overnight. It's going to actually take a lot of dialogue and conversation and thinking together in order to keep moving something like this platform forward. So what is the platform and why is it there? Well, it's a very broad set of ideas. Everything from how to, how to achieve deeply progressive taxation to multiple strategies to, to generate jobs in black communities. It reimagines our relationship with land and economic development by putting equity and community control at the center of our land use vision. It argues for things like participatory budgeting led by communities towards goals such as divesting from punitive criminalization and militarization in order to invest, right, in meeting the basic needs of and ensuring the well-being of black communities. So it's, it's pretty big picture. Why? Why did the Movement for Black Lives decide to go out and put such a broad uh, policy platform out in the world? I have a friend and a colleague at the Center for Social Inclusion, Glenn Harris, who often uses this as a, an example on how to capture that um, answer, the number 30. There is more than a 30-year difference in life expectancy between zip codes, certain zip codes near Ferguson, Missouri. And you can imagine what the racial breakdown is in that gap. Those 30 years of stolen life are taken by inequities in a wide range of social systems, many of which are touched upon by the platform. Together, it adds up to what many in the field describes as a sort of deep and structural racism that permeates every aspect of the lives of people in our country. It's a sum total of interactions across and between systems that serve to marginalize, harm, and oppress, among others, black communities. And this is what the platform seeks to confront. For that reason, it needed to be systemic, it needed to be structural, it needed to be big picture. And 30 years is more than a third of most lifetimes. So how do we turn such a large gap around? The answer to that question is pretty varied. It's inevitably complicated. But what we as a progressive community invest in has to be part of the answer. In fact, out of the platform, a larger campaign of umbrella of divest and invest has emerged that applies to both public and private investment. And that's what we're going to be talking about here. I'm taking the first half of this conversation to talk about the divestment side, the sort of bads that we should either be taxing or divesting from. And Rashad is going to take the second half of this conversation and um, talk about the goods, the things that we should be investing in. So before I sort of jump into those specific things, Rashad, did you want to add anything at this point or, or should I just keep going? Um, no, I think you're doing a great job, Kathy. I'll be sure to add in my content once it comes. To all right, me. thank you. Appreciate it. Uh, all right, so 
the way we've split up this conversation is to think about things in terms of bads to divest and tax and goods to invest uh, in from both a public and a private perspective. So we need to, I, kept, I forget to move my slides, but the purpose really behind the platform is to dismantle structural racism that's creating such, such harm across communities, black communities in the country. And it's a very simple idea, this divest and invest, to invest in good things and divest from bad things. But what are goods? What are the good things? What's the, what are the set of principles and goals we want to be thinking about when we want to be thinking about what we're moving towards? We want to be moving towards things that offer community control and deepen local democracy. That's a central principle of the platform, building agency in communities. We want to move towards things and that curb speculation and, and speculative pressure that exacerbates structural racism. A lot of the privatization we've seen, the speculation, the, the house flipping, the displacement, um, really, really deepens existing inequity and does enormous harm. We want to increase equity by centering the needs of black communities, thinking, creating both policy and practice, both from the public and the private side, that starts from meeting those needs. And we want to think about this as providing a form of reparation in response to the centuries of anti-black racism. We want to be able to name that and recognize it and be clear that that is our goal and protect black communities by providing stability and cohesion that those communities have been so long denied. So what are bads? Bads are, as you might expect, the opposite, right? And some of the clear bads that were named in the platform were criminalization, environmental racism, privatization, and inequitable development and displacement. So I'm just going to go briefly through each of them. Some of them are really obvious, right, why you would want to divest, and some may be a little less obvious in the way that they show up in communities across the country. Criminalization is one of the most obvious, right? The U.S. has less than 5% of the population of the world and almost 25% of the prisoners in the world. That's more than 2 million people incarcerated. Now, the global average, 150 people per 100,000 incarcerated. Even white people aren't faring so well in the U.S. on this metric, 450 per 100,000. Latinos are 831. Now, that's almost that's less, almost double per 100,000. But then you look at black communities, and it's 2,306 per 100,000. That's astronomical. That's astronomical. That is more than 10 times the global average, more than 10 times. Unless you think that um, it has something to do is that it can be explained by different behaviors or decisions, you can, you can look at the criminal justice system and one out of five people are incarcerated for drug offenses. But drug use is the same, the same across race, uh, while racial disparities for incarceration persist. So remember that, that white drug dealer on your college campus? I'm sure y'all met him at some point walking around with his bag of weed and whatnot. Um, he is much less likely to get arrested and incarcerated than the same youth engaging in the same activities on a street corner. So the disparities cannot be explained by different behaviors. They have to be explained by the way race shows up. So incarceration is only one way that black communities suffer criminalization. We see it in the school to prison pipeline where youth 
are targeted for abusive discipline where you have excessive security in cops in school. We see it in the criminalization of public housing. We know people in New Orleans who were kicked out of their homes for things as small as forgetting to replace a light bulb that they got fined for. And if you're simply charged for an offense without being proven guilty, you can get thrown out of your housing in many public housing complexes across the country. And of course, then there's the day-to-day -day street harassment that black communities suffer across the country. So what do we want to divest from? Again, this is an easy one. This is an obvious one. Anything that, that, that moves incarceration, anything that involves needless security and over-policing over of any kind. Similarly, things like environmental racism, not hard, not hard to understand. Race determines proximity to toxins. Studies done show that that is actually the largest factor that determines how close a person is going to be to toxins. Three out of five, get that number, imagine, three out of five black Americans are near uncontrolled toxic waste. So again, an easy one, landfills, incinerators, toxic industry, clear bats. But what about things that are a little bit more complicated? Things like the way privatization gets positioned to be a solution to a social problem, right? Privatization, from the perspective of the vision for black lives, is a false solution. And even though Rashad's gonna talk mostly about the goods, because he's in Detroit, he's gonna start by sort of sharing a little bit about what that experience has been like in terms of charter schools and vouchers and privatizing the Detroit school system and what has happened there. So I hand it over to you and then you can get back to me and then I'll get back to you later. You want to go? All right. Thanks, Kathy. Um, so I think I think it's actually kind of interesting that privatization and the charter school um, debate has like kind of reached a like new level of like um, a new level of of awareness, mainly because of the Trump administration and all the controversy that had to do with the um, Betsy DeVos, who, like, ironically, is you know is from Michigan and had like a huge uh, had a huge stake in the charter school uprising within Michigan and thus affecting affecting Detroit. So, um, Detroit has actually been Detroit and Michigan have like kind of like been on this kind of road to chartering for a while now, actually going dating far as back as 2002 when our governor, John Engler, who was very much interested in the, like the ideals of, of, what, of what is being said as choice about creating these like independent forces that are like gonna force like public schools to innovate more. But what ended up happening um, as a result of creating, like creating this type of, well, the lack of regulation that allowed all these different charter schools to come in is that they're, Taking all the same dollars that the public schools are um, are having, not really showing any difference in the level of education, but not only that, by like not having a difference, but also like a huge, huge surge of just charter schools just swamped Michigan and with like absolutely no cap to the um, to the amount of charter schools that were able to enter um, enter Michigan and, and Detroit and um, not as much regulation, like not even states states even having the power. To um to close these schools down, only that power being vested in the uh, the for-profit companies that are a part of uh, charter schools. So 
they enacted reg regulations that extended charter ownership to public school districts, community colleges, universities, by giving it a huge amount of range and giving it a financial incentive to these to these um, entities, like giving 3% of the share dollars, um, share of the dollars going into um, the money for these charter schools, which is like essentially allowed for-profit companies to just really seize on that on that opportunity. And now they own, for-profit companies own about 80% of all the charters that are um, that are in Michigan right now, and they and it's kind of like a connectedness between those for-profit companies and the conservative administrations in Michigan. It's they lobby very heavily for it, and they work together in order to really repress um, any type of um, community control of of charter schools. And what ends up happening there really is if we, you know, one of the big things in the vision for Black Lives is that black black people are going to be the are the best experts of their own experience and rather than any other advocate, if you have all these different outsiders, there really is no level of like self-determination for these communities. So these charter schools like concentrate themselves in these urban areas and ultimately they just, uh, they it's like such a huge disparity, like in like my side of the city, like the Northwest side of the city, there's 3,742 students that would be ready for high school when there's only three high schools in that area. On the east side of Detroit, where there's 6,018 students that be ready, there's only there's only like three high schools. Whereas, whereas like in the charter schools, they all concentrate in the downtown area where there's a lot of a lot of wealth, and that's like a thousand. That's only a thousand eight hundred ninety-four high school students, but there's like there's 11 high schools in there. So it's like it's it's showing how just the pure free market when allowed to to jump into an area with um, a bunch of poor people, a bunch of black people, those same type of disparities that you see in any other way in the free market um, is gonna is gonna show itself even in things that have like such a good intention, such as schooling. So like as you can see, like we have all these statistics about going, what's going on in Detroit. Um, Seventy public schools have been closed. Charters are still growing by twenty percent. You have public schools with a deficit of two hundred eighty-three million. Um, it's the forty-first in the nation in fourth grade reading, um, 28th, well, again, 2003, and 84% of charter students in Michigan performed below the state average in math, and 80% were below the state average in reading. So what you're seeing is, like, you're seeing literally no quality difference and no um, expect, there's no um, result difference, but you're letting all these competed entities and charter schools scramble for the same amount of money, and it's really causing, like, a huge crisis. Actually, Rashad, it's, it's even, it, it's not even no difference. The scores have plummeted. As Detroit has been charterized, that's why it was 41st in, in fourth grade reading now, and it was 28th in 2003. So not only has it not done any good, but by creating this dynamic where you have failing enrollment in private schools, so you have rising debt for public schools while charter schools get the resources, you're actually overall really suppressing learning across the city. Um, so do you want me to talk a little bit about New Orleans? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so this, sure. Um, you can also, do you want to okay. do I can't hear you. <laughs> All right, I'm gonna go on because I can't hear you. So this is just a quote from a from a parent in Detroit. 
It says, okay, you're free to go wherever you want, but if I have two crappy schools close to me and you close the school that's out of, out of the three that was the best one, how are you helping me? What choice is in that? Um, parents who are sort of the target of this charterization, many are saying they don't really feel they have real choice. And sometimes charters are the only choice they have, and that's not actually any kind of uh, growing of choice at all. Now, New Orleans is the other example um, around charters. What's, because New Orleans is a, is a slightly different example in which charters were really pushed into the system. It's 90% charterized after Katrina. And what people, although it's being um, lauded, right, as a positive example, what a lot of people don't understand is the history of, of what happened in New Orleans, what the parents and youth have had to do, and how they feel today. So initially, the charter experiment in New Orleans was an unmitigated catastrophe, just like Detroit. They, they put all these charter schools in place after the storm, and they were pushing out special ed students, they were targeting students with abusive discipline, they were consistently um, doing what they call creaming, only taking students that would give them the highest test scores, and the system was in crisis. Uh, now it's described as a positive example, but in part, in part, it's because government, as Politico said in January of this year, government has reasserted its role in New Orleans. Um, it's actually imposing accountability on the charter schools a little closer to the way it would on the public schools, but it still hasn't approximated, according to the parents we speak to there, public accountability. What we hear from the parents in New Orleans is that the school remains fragmented, that they find it hard to navigate, that you can't improve the system as a whole. You have to go one school at a time because there is so, no sort of system-wide cohesion. And that they often will show up at a school who's supposed to take their kids, right, because these are still floated by public dollars as well, and told, oh, I'm sorry, your kid is not a fit. It's sort of completely contrary to the spirit of universal public education that uh, was a result of the common school movements that made public, public education a right in this country. So, while there are many challenges around improving public education, from the perspective of the platform, from the perspective of the movement, from the perspective of many black communities across the country, charter schools are a solution. I mean, we understand that it is a controversial topic, and even members we have in our education coalition who believe this will still send their child to a charter school because it's the best option they have, but they know that it's not a good systemic uh, long-term structural solution for their communities. The next false solution, before we get into something a little bit more positive, is uh, inequitable development. Inequitable development is something that has devastated black communities. Our development frameworks lead to either abandoned neighborhood in some areas and the displacement of black and other low-income communities in other areas. It's uneven development. It's either blight or gentrification. Now, we're not the only ones who think this. In fact, Aaron Walker, the president of Ford Foundation, was at the Schomburg the other day, and he was talking about uh, a community meeting where a woman was anguishing over the fact that a supermarket was coming into her neighborhood. Because when she thought about that supermarket, she didn't think about the fact that, oh, maybe I'll have a nicer supermarket, or maybe I'll have better food, or maybe I'll have better prices. All she could think about was, that supermarket's not being built for me. That supermarket means that they are, quote, improving this neighborhood, that rents are going to go up, that I'm going to be displaced, 
and that new people, probably not black people, are going to be coming and taking over this neighborhood. So he asked, Darren Walker posed the question, how can we improve neighborhoods without displacement of people and destruction of affordable housing? That's something Rashad is going to touch on later, but I just want to first draw attention to the, the sort of dangers of the false solution of these uh, uneven development approaches that lead to displacement and gentrification. So what you're seeing there is a picture of the Inner Harbor in Baltimore. I'm using it as an example. In Baltimore, they call this Gold Coast development, right, the, the, actually developing the coast. And the idea is you want to draw wealth into the city through offering public subsidies to private investors. And they've been doing that since the 1970s. So the supermarkets came, the stores came, the rents and the housing prices rose, and the people who were there were pushed out and never received the benefits. I'm going to use Baltimore as an example of something a little bit, give you a little bit more sort of detail. So since the 70s, this trickle-down development policy has been put in place in Baltimore. It created a speculative real estate boom in the Inner Harbor. And of the 50 largest cities in the United States, Baltimore has moved to the 15th in terms of census tracts that have been gentrified. But nothing trickles down. As I said before, cost of living goes up and incomes remain low. When you combine all the people currently on disability-related assistance, diminished federal housing assistance for households with income under 25,000, and the, city, the city's trickle-down approach, what it does is it becomes not a development approach, it becomes a forced eviction approach. It becomes a strategy of displacement. Currently, almost a third of the city households are at risk of homelessness or displacement. And on the other side of the ledger, you have tens of thousands of vacant homes deteriorating across the city, a visible reminder that development dollars were not used to help the entire city, did not follow needs of communities, but were concentrated in order to attract wealth um, rather than sort of meet the needs that they were supposed to meet. So if we go back to the principles that the platform put out, you can see that that kind of development approach doesn't meet any of them. It doesn't offer community control and deepen local democracy it actually exacerbates speculation, right? Houses become more expensive, land becomes more expensive, which exacerbates structural racism, because if you look at the history of racism in housing, it explains a big part of the wealth gap in this country. It doesn't increase equity. On the contrary, it actually concentrates the resources into the newcomers. It, it is not in any way a form of reparation, and rather than stability and cohesion, what you have is serial displacement and again, pockets of deep, deep light. So we need to think about how to change our development paradigm and what we invest in. Another example is tax increment financing. I don't know if y'all had heard of that. I hadn't heard of that, so we started working with partners in Baltimore. This is a, a form of giving private uh, corporations a benefit by diverting future property tax revenue from a defined area or district towards a particular project. So the example I'm going to really focus on, again, in Baltimore, is Under Armour. But there's been three of these. There was a $29.1 billion Exelon Corporation in Harbor Point, an unneeded convention hotel, and now an Under Armour corporate headquarters. The property taxes will be earmarked for 30 years. And until they're retired, the community can't even begin to imagine receiving a benefit. And during those 30 years, all the enormous need in the surrounding area 
parks, recreation, maintenance, fire station will remain both unabated and unmet. Ultimately, this is a half billion dollar subsidy to Under Armour. And in the history of this kind of development, we have never seen the jobs materialize for community members, and we have never seen the economic benefits flow in any kind of equitable way. So this is another what we call false solution. This would be pitched as an economic development project. This will be argued as something that's going to bring jobs to communities. But the reality is the benefits flow very inequitably, inequitably towards private investors, not for communities, not for schools, not for healthcare, not for education, not for jobs, not for jobs that are guaranteed at a living wage because we rarely see those actually happen. So one of the things we want to urge people to think about is how do you avoid these false solutions that may present themselves as answers but actually years only growing. So now I'm going to hand it over to Rashad because he's going to talk about two solutions that are not false solutions uh, from the perspective of the movement for black lives, from the perspective of the vision, and from the perspective of many communities across the country, specifically community land trusts and black worker co-ops. So I'm going to hand it over to you now. Thank you. I'll just jump in with one uh, quick comment there for the group in general. Um, if you would like to ask a question at any point, please, if you're using the, um, uh, the WebEx platform, use the chat function there, uh, would be the, the easiest way. And um, lastly, um, thank you, Kathy, for, uh, for the first part of the presentation. Really enlightening, again, to see how some of the uh, how these dynamics play out uh, concretely and how the the details really are what um, allows us to to see the ultimate effect on communities as we as we always say in the context of our work is not enough to just look at um, a sectoral approach for uh, for progressiveness in investing right it's not just a matter of investing in education or investing in affordable housing is the how and the who benefits that ultimately leads to it. And I like this framing that you're giving us in terms of saying, okay, let's let's look at this continuum. Let's look at it as an entire spectrum from the worst things that need to be avoided, the false solutions that might seem to be getting us in the right direction but are not, things that are neutral to good, and then ultimately um, the things that are the best representations of the uh, of the type of new economy that we want to build. So, with that, um, Rashad, uh, help us understand a couple of this a um, uh, couple of this good side opportunities that uh, are featured in the platform. Sure. So, definitely want to echo your statements, Kathy. Um, started off with a very like excellent like found foundation for for um what you know what is what is like what is the movement doing to like actually do things that are proactive and not just like the divestment piece. So she pretty much hit the nail on the head when it came to wealth because um wealth is something that that you know despite um wealth is something that you know is like very like integral to being able to build power and being able to have control over your communities and not be basically subject to all of these different negative effects such as displacement, um, 
um, over policing with with the right power um, in the hands of community leaders, then we can actually have we will have we'll be able to incubate and develop. And as the history of the um, um, black community in this country is, is goes is every time that there were certain efforts to really like make that step toward wealth, they were like violently or either violently either via like very like physical violence or very subtly like destroyed. So like um, just start want to start off with like some big picture aspects in which like, wealth was um, destroyed even be before like some of these contemporary issues. So like it, um, aspects in um, Tulsa, Oklahoma, also known as Black Wall Street, where there was a thriving black community that was developed that ended up being destroyed by like outsiders, outsiders like that are nearby the community that um, due to like racist views ended up bombing a lot of the a lot of the area. So displacement has been something that's, you know, not just due to like, not just due to these recent um, ethics of like the since the 70s and development, it's been something that's been ongoing. So and then even in Detroit, where this is like a, a sub a, like a subtle example where Black Bottom was another was a thriving black community ended up getting um, people pushed out and for the sake of developing like a stadium and other things. So like wealth is like definitely like a huge part of that. And we need to be like looking at um, things that can like help build the wealth. So going beyond things that are just like, oh, like fair chance hiring that allow like, oh, like let's allow these um, some of the people in the community to have some of the jobs. But a lot of those jobs are frankly quite, quite awful and don't end up developing the wealth in the region. And they end up, those jobs are just a part of those same companies that are doing the, the displacement and all the other subtle effects that Kathy talked about. So like, how do we move toward um, like building like that wealth? And what we can do is things like community land trust, black worker cooperatives, black owned community development, credit unions, insurance companies, and other like financial institutions. These are different things that can help us to like incubate um, these communities and immunize them from some of the structural racism. So I'm gonna be talking about mainly the community land trust and um, the black worker cooperatives. So I'll start off with talking about like community land trust. So community land trust like actually have like a historical connection to the civil rights movement back in the 60s because it was used as a tool to get sharecroppers in the South to be able to acquire more land. So it was an original invention around in 1969 in Albany, Georgia. And that movement started off just focusing on farming and, and land, but it eventually started to expand toward other different functions, such as housing. Um, and nowadays there's, um, housing is like is a huge kickoff and is being, and is being jumped to around like 200 different community land trusts around the around the country are starting to use this new model and to move beyond the just the, the traditional public public housing, which is like has is rooted is rooted in the, a very conservative Reagan area. So the com community land trusts are like a hybrid of public and private ownership. So and it's also a hybrid of community property ownership. And, and in the private sector. And what happens is um, people are given a, a, what is called a ground lease in which the different residents of the community are able to get ownership of the home 
and the community land trust retains like the ownership of of the land and this allows the clt to be able to control the resale values um and ha and it gives it a priority in the purchasing of the homes when they are resale so that it basically uh, um serves as kind of like a defense from all the speculative marketing pressure and then like and additionally it gives the residents still that that level of being able to build equity because it's still partially private the residents can still build equity and being be able to build their wealth based on based on that so you can retain you you're able to retain the affordability but you're also able to build wealth which is like a perfect kind of like in between which essentially leads to no displacement and another like key aspect of community land trust outside of building belt wealth for the region is that it's it's still community controlled it is a local board of directors and those board of directors are people that are typically members of the community so they can set priorities to the acquisition of the property um give assistance to the owners and allow the all the members to participate so it's truly like allowing for like a self-determined um type of fashion and Rashad, if you don't mind, just two interesting statistics. Um, it actually really outperforms the private market in terms of even meeting supposedly the goals of the private market, which is building equity, because uh, only 50% of low-income homeowners who are given a subsidy to buy their home are actually in that home five years later, while over 90% of homeowners who get a home in a community land trust are still in that home. And community land trust had the lowest, absolutely lowest rate of foreclosure in 2009 of any other kind of owned uh, housing. I think it was six or seven times higher in the private market than it was in CLTs. You saw very few foreclosures. Um, so I just wanted to sort of share that as well because it's, it's the, sort of the data is very promising. Yeah, absolutely. I thank you for that. Um, and CLTs are can be used to incubate like not only just communal land ownership and wealth, but we can be it can be used to help support black owned businesses. It can be used to help produce green energy and just allow community stewardship the entire way forward instead of of instead of the the model of, oh well let's just give fair chance hiring where it's still these outsiders that are still trying to like have some level of control in the community. So it's it's like one of the most radical approaches to uh, community ownership. Um, right. And it, the other so way. So I guess now, if I can move on to worker cooperatives, unless, Kathy, you want to share something else about CLTs? Yeah, just one other way of thinking about it, right? If you're going to invest anywhere, whether it's a public or a private sort of investment, the other really. Hello? Uh, yeah, can you hear me? Yeah. The, the other thing about CLTs yep. is that that, in, that benefit remains in the yeah, community. Yeah, I hear you now. Because if you buy a house on the private market, if you actually enable uh, black community members to buy a house, and they end up, through speculative pressure, selling it and leaving, they're taking that benefit that was invested in the house out of the community, and you're losing community cohesion. Well, if you control that resale value so that a person of the same sort of uh, income level can buy the next house, that investment stays in the community. We call it sort of retaining we often think about it from a public uh, subsidy perspective, but you retain the subsidy in the community when you have community control and when the, the, the house prices are set in order to meet community needs, not to respond to speculative pressure. 
so yeah, you can you can go to worker co-ops. Actually, let me ask uh, one quick question that came in uh, uh, via the chat function here. It says uh, somebody that is a fan of uh, community land trust, but adds that uh, they have been denounced in, in some communities of color as the housing version of sharecropping, and asks uh, how do the panelists deal with this resistance? I mean, most of the. Do you want to you want to respond, Rashad, and then I'll. Um, I'm still like kind of synthesizing my response, so I can go ahead after you. Yeah, I mean, look, like any, like any of these issues around privatization, right? You have the same kind of um, debates around charter schools, right? Where not not that everyone in the community is going to agree. The sharecropping, somebody else owns your land, so let's like that's actually not a really a strong analogy, you're literally renting your land. In a community land trust, the community, as a nonprofit, of which you are a member and a part, owns the land, and the individual and the family owns the housing. Now, what they might be getting at is, yeah, you, you are containing and controlling equity, and you're trading that for controlling risk and ensuring community stability. And it's really whether you want to think about how do you benefit specific individuals versus how do you develop an, the, the well-being of an entire community. Because you're going to build more equity on the whole in the community if you have something like a community land trust. But it is true that there are individuals who will not be able to flip a home and leave with that sort of extra profit. So it's really how you see the question of risk solidarity and how you see the question of whether you want to look for solutions that are community-wide or you want to try to respond to the the equity and the wealth gap on a very individual basis through private market strategies. What we do know is that private market strategies have been tried and they have failed. Yeah, and the only the only thing that I would add to that is is essentially um when you when you're looking at it like through the lens of like individual um like development and like building wealth on your own like like if you're looking at it through that like traditional lens then yeah it's like gonna it's gonna offer i mean it's gonna like exclude some of the people that want to like develop on that on that level but ultimately like one of like the biggest like principles when we're doing um when, we're, when creating like the movement for black lives and even byp hundreds like values is like we need to focus on the most marginalized of them of them like even though as as a whole like the black community is marginalized if we don't focus on the intersections of those that are facing the, the worst like outcomes, then ultimately we're not gonna be able to develop a, any type of solution that's gonna be inclusive um, to, to all of us. So I think really um, like having those conversations on like the differences between like that individual like access to capital and like the entire communal access to capital is pretty important. And I will add to that quickly, also building on what, what Kathy said, you know, as we started looking at this, uh, at this issue of how racial justice shows up in each asset class, somebody said to me, well, if you look at it, McDonald's has created more black uh, millionaires than any other company in this country. And I think that that goes very much to this, um, uh, this notion of parsing out the difference between the, the individual wealth creation and wealth benefit versus the community 
uh, wealth creation. And uh, I, I think that in the case of McDonald's, it would be uh, fairly uncontroversial to, um, to say that it has not uh, intrinsically created health and wealth within uh, within communities of color, regardless of the number of uh, individual millionaire franchisees that might have come through it. Right. The other the other thing to just note to that sort of a response to that it's actually a, to that conservative concern, right, about individual worth wealth building. Community land trusts, especially in places like Baltimore, actually do not hold back anyone in in any community from increasing their individual wealth. And in fact, by addressing things like the uneven development, the blight, and the abandonment, it actually supports a kind of more stable property values across the city. So it's also hard to understand how that is necessary, how having, how growing that sector in, in any way would, would hamper the sort of glass ceiling kind of concerns about black millionaires. Um, and also, I just like, I thought of something else I just wanted to add to the piece. I think um, we need to be, um, like looking like at the historical um, like winds of like let's say like I, I brought up the the civil rights movement um, earlier and if you look at the winds of the civil rights movement it was essentially we we were able to have integration through representation you have like representation that the, and you have like individual access so like it is technically possible that that you know certain individuals can reach like certain levels that they've never had been before, but there hasn't been a lot of work on, they've just been focused on, on equality, but not really equity and like looking at really like the outcomes of these situations for the black communities as a whole. And there was a lot of conversation around like, oh, we've reached a post-racial society because we're seeing all these, you know, these black millionaires um, like from McDonald's or you, you can see, you can point to individual references of, of like, individual success, but like looking at all the different structural um, problems that are just putting so many other people out, the vast majority out, then it's really not, we won't really achieve racial justice until we like focus on things that are are, are more equity um, centered. And and just to echo things I've heard many, many a times being brought up by, by spokespeople for the Movement for Black Lives, the the goal, the vision behind the platform is to actually create solutions that center those that are most marginalized, right? So the vision actually talks about black people, but also talks about uh, trans people, talks about migration status. It's really looking at all the intersection that marginalizes all black people in this country and wants to look for solutions that put the people that are most at need at the center, rather than, again, the sort of individual solution of building some more black millionaires. So it doesn't actually, that's why community land trusts much more closely align. And I think we have to even do them differently. There's a lot of work that still needs to be done in community land trusts to make sure that they are available to people of the lowest income, which is what we describe as people that are 30% average medium income and under. And it's possible with the model. And that's where the conversation with investors and with government is important because we have to build those solutions together. So you want to go on to co-ops, Rajan? Sure. So, um, yeah, I'm glad we had we were able to have that discussion. So, as it relates to 
to jobs. Um, I think worker cooperatives are like an excellent piece in now now we're talking about communal ownership, but now not necessarily communal communal ownership of the land, but now communal communal ownership of your of your actual of these actual of actual companies. So in a very from a very like high level, um a a cooperative is simply a a, a institution, a company, but the employers I mean the employees are are actually co owners of the establishment. And as we said before, like job joblessness and a lack of employment is like one of the um greatest threats to to black communities. And black people are excluded from employment through like so many different practices. Some have already been stated like mainly via criminalization, but also due to the school to prison pipeline and such a such an educational like crisis going on in urban areas that's it's creating a lot more of a like a rooted issue as well but how can we um use that same model of like community or ownership but do it when it when it comes to to jobs and worker cooperatives can address address that joblessness but because it's centered for the center with the community in mind it meets that intersection of both business and social impact and it provides job opportunities that will actually allow that allow these um allow these members of the cooperatives to actually like to develop it gives them like dignity with their work and not just giving them something that can just literally make um they, their ends meet and it allows them to um build wealth locally uh, and it outside of like i already said about creating um quality jobs but being able to contribute to not only the success of the company, but you also are ultimately committing to like building the success of the community as a whole, because they're the community and the and the jobs are like intersected as as opposed to just private ownership of companies that are just really there for like an extractive type of purpose. They just want to get the labor out of you, but are necessarily putting in wealth into the community. Right, and the jobs that co-ops offer tend to be higher wages. They tend to have better conditions. And they also tend to involve a lot more ongoing training and development of the employee owners. So it's an investment in the people, it's an investment in the community, and it, it's a model that we should definitely be thinking about uh, bringing to scale, and that's where capital really comes in because there is, a, there is a challenge in getting enough capital to bring some of these efforts to scale. And. Uh... Finally, I just wanted to say another thing about the the communal aspect as with respect to the um, individual aspect is that not only are you when you when you focus on like individual things like creating more wealth for individuals and creating black millionaires, what you're also doing by like focusing on more of a communal ownership model is that you're actually allowing a better you're allowing a better support within the black community to support themselves. So like one of the issues is that since when we when we when when integration happened when you integrated directly into a capitalist model a lot of a lot of people that are actually able to, to build that like individual wealth there's such a separation between them and all the rest of the members of the community that there really isn't like a very like impactful way of being able to to give back to community like yes you can go through philanthropy like yes you can do certain like modest investments, but without like a true like shared 
like community ownership, it makes it very difficult, especially when it as it relates to displacement. You know, when you have all these different things like that going on, it's very hard to have people from the same community like minded to come together and like build for the whole community in mind because the way the way the market is set up is like it's literally not built in your favor to to be like helping other people, at least like in a very substantial way that communal ownership would be able to do. And I think with cooperatives and community land trusts, you can that's like just the first step. Obviously we can add to this and it's not perfect, but it's that first step toward building that type of like um world where black liberation can actually happen. Okay. And so I'll just wrap it up with a quick story on how how this notion of community control and the economic justice platform sort of came together. We were actually sitting down trying to figure out what connects the criminal justice aspects of the platform to the economic justice aspects of the platform. And suddenly it occurred to us, well, we're, we're asking, the group is asking for community control over police. Well, if you need community control over police, how much more do you not need it over the things that make your day-to-day -day life possible, your housing, your schools, and everything else? And in that set of conversations, community control became a central principle. So overall, just, just to go quickly over the Divest Invest, um, there are you know, explicit bads that you all probably are really well aware of and know how to avoid. There are false solutions um, that you just need to be wary of and understand how particular projects actually play out on the ground because they're not usually what they're advertised for. There are institutions moving in the right direction, but even those you have to be careful. If, if it's fair chance hiring, how is it implemented? Are they decent jobs? And is it part of a, you know, Under, Under Armour signed up for fair chance hiring, for example, but at the same time, they're really draining public subsidies in Detroit. So you have to, just, it's a complicated landscape, right? And you have to figure out how to square that circle. And finally, you know, what we think of as sort of the gold standard community controlled efforts that meet the needs of black neighborhood cities across the country. So we'll leave you with just one last thought, which is the way to, we think, to figure this out is building relationships, right? And we really want to thank Transform Finance for trying to create that bridge um, because we each have to, those of us doing the work in communities and with communities, uh, need to come halfway across that bridge and we need investors to come the other half so we can understand each other's sort of choices and positions and goals. But the only way to really uh, figure this out is to build those relationships between these communities. So we do encourage you to continue the conversation, to show up in spaces where community efforts are happening. A lot of you are already deeply involved. I don't know who you all are, but I'm sure some of you are and some of you are not as much. But that's really... Um, where we think this conversation needs to go to a place where relationships are built and people understand each other's work better. Rashad, do Thank you. Have any you. Last words? And just to be clear, in terms of last words, this is just in terms of the presentation. Now we have a space for uh, for questions and a little bit of discussion. So um, uh, definitely don't don't jump off quite uh, quite yet. Yeah, we wanted to leave at least half um, hour. Or yeah. Any. So, I mean, I, a lot of things, great things have already been said. The only thing that I would add is just when you're looking at the, the divestment investment model, um, look, think of the things that we're divesting from, like when it comes to issues with uh, the punitive system, prisons and police, you really have to like look and see that this is really 
um, a, you're putting band-aids on like a huge gaping wound by thinking of the only way of to have security in the community is by increasing um, police and by like increasing um, the amount of prisons you have. And then we really need to be looking at like what are the more substantive things that we can be investing in to actually fix a lot of the ills in um, some of these communities that have been cultivated for so many years because of the neglect. So that when you're really thinking of divest invest, really think about divesting from things that are very superficial and are really ultimately harming and investing in things that are more substantive. That's all. I'll just leave it with that. Fantastic. Thank you. So I will try to bring uh, bring up a few of the um, uh, of the questions that have been coming through the chat and combine them into a, a couple of main topics. You know, one observation that, that has come up is really um, very much this uh, difference that we even in the in the narrative, right? If we look at uh, what um, Kathy was bringing up in terms of what the Movement for Black Lives views as the divest invest topic, right, and how far it goes beyond just the issue of uh, um, of environmental divestment from fossil fuels. That is how a lot of the investor community would traditionally understand that terminology, but really looking at how to move uh, institutions, how to have more of these community control processes. I think that's an example of how um, uh, even just the, the conversation and the framing is uh, is being enriched by building this uh, by building this bridge. Now, one thing, if I may, try to bring it together from some of the comments that I've seen coming in the chat, is uh, more proactively on this role of the investors and the way in which they can fit into the scale or of uh, of this initiative. So um, uh, worker ownership is something that, of course, even within the Transform Finance Investor Network, we've been looking at for quite a while, and it's still a fairly limited space and one that doesn't necessarily always lend itself to some of the, um, as I see in one of the, in one of the questions, uh, some of the parameters that the investors might have uh, in the uh, already pre-established. So, as we know, there are some asset owners who can be a lot more flexible with the with the returns that they seek. Others that that have uh, somewhat stronger limitations. So maybe I'll put the question out to you, um, Kathy. How can we reconcile a little bit this idea of the localized community ownership with the role of the investors that have traditionally seen their piece as part of ownership as well? And how can this be scaled up? You know, you ask all the easy questions and I really appreciate it. One thing you said once that um, I want to kind of throw back at you that might make sense as a frame you once told me that an investor shouldn't think about walking away with more from their investment than the community does, right? It's just really, if, if an investor is expecting to get something out of their investment, but that's a, that's a shared investment, right? Because the community is putting in a lot as well. So how do you actually generate a dialogue as to what a fair investment is and what are the goals of that investment, right? And sometimes things are not going to work um, well, if they are structured traditionally with the kind of return on an investment we expect. So, you know, it could, it could mean everything from 
Some things are not the kind of investment you want for a specific ROI. Other things might be worth getting a lesser ROI. And, and, and yet, third kind of options is maybe there are different ways to restructure investment if you get creative and sit down with communities to figure out how to move in these directions. But, you know, I definitely don't have the, the technical expertise to offer prescriptive solutions uh, on that level. But I do know that a process is needed to think out of the boxes that we have uh, limited ourselves to. Yeah, I, uh, I, I absolutely agree with you, Kathy. And this fits very well in that idea of saying that there is a role for investors to play. And, uh, you know, we're talking about a fair allocation of this, uh, of this various roles. So looking at it not from a place of investor primacy, but a place of investor support where you say, the investor group, like everybody else, has its own constraints around the kind of risk that they can take on, the kind of returns that they might need, but modulating that within the, the needs of the community and within the, the theory of social change that is being, uh, that is being put forth. Um, and um, actually, in the, in the next webinar, uh, in uh, two weeks or so, we will be looking at some of these alternative forms of uh, um, of investment into uh, broader scale cooperatives, not just uh, uh, worker-owned cooperatives, but more on the uh, on the tech platform side, and uh, picking up again on some of the technical elements that we had looked at a while back with uh, Namaste Solar on uh, the use of uh, uh, preferred equity and some other uh, instruments that can capitalize co-ops. Uh, um, in ways that can actually be done at uh, at a bigger scale than the more traditional uh, worker co-op financing. Um, I wanted to bring up now a couple of examples of investor activity that we have seen to inspire the folks that in the chat also have been asking how can we be more uh, more involved, and then perhaps call on one or two of the investors uh, uh, or the asset owners from the foundations side. They have been looking at these issues for uh, for a while. So we participated recently in a, a prison reform convening for impact investors put together by the um, uh, Rockefeller Family Foundation and uh, ICCR. There was really an effort um, to look at what role investors can play that goes beyond just divestment from private prisons, but in a more holistic way looking at uh, um, quality jobs, looking at fair chance hiring, and some of the other opportunities. And I think that looking at it from the sectorial perspective actually makes sense, right? It's a variety of initiatives, the, some of which will fit some of the investors and some will be good for others. The other initiative that we've been following closely is uh, Spark, which uh, was that um, uh, which was launched at the Schomburg Center. That's what uh, Kathy was referring to earlier when uh, making a comment about uh, uh, that Darren Walker uh, made from the Ford Foundation. And uh, it's interestingly, Spark has this $90 million effort to um, capitalize a select group of uh, um, cities within the United States. Uh, has been working um, explicitly on the idea of how to build a racial justice element into the analysis of the projects that will be that will be funded by Spark, 
And uh, we're in conversations there with the NRDC Center for Market Innovation that is uh, one of the members of the Investor Network um, that is trying to figure out uh, a, almost as a, as a due diligence aspect on the project through Spark, what the racial justice effects will be. Um, as an example of how that is done, I don't know if um, many of you are familiar with the Prince George County in uh, Chesapeake Bay uh, effort uh, for a um, stormwater runoff bond that built into it very explicitly this idea of saying, well, which communities will benefit from this? Who will the jobs be created for? And how will um, uh, how will race be showing up within uh, within a project that on its face, if you think about stormwater reduction, doesn't necessarily sound like a racial issue, but ends up very much being a, a, a racial issue. Um, another thing that is happening that I wanted to bring up in this context is a convening that will happen next Friday um, uh, at the Wagner, uh, at NYU Wagner, the Social Innovation and uh, Investment Initiative uh, called Who Benefits? It's a symposium on equity, diversity, and inclusion in social finance, focusing on New York City and uh, uh, what, um, how this um, equity um, and diversity is showing up in the social finance uh, space in New York. Feel free to reach out to me if that is, uh, is something that might be of interest. I think that more broadly, and then I would love to hear some more questions from, uh, from the audience, what we have seen so far in this, uh, uh, in this area for further engagement is that before we even start thinking about, okay, how can we move capital? How can we move massive amounts of capital that are needed uh, for a more racially just um, country, really? Um, there are a few themes that have come up. One is that of broadening our circles of conversation, bringing in more interlocutors, more of the thought leaders such as um, Kathy and Rashad that so kindly are joining us today. And really trying to see where some of our blind spots are in these issues. I think many of us, when, uh, uh, when we think about, yeah, the supermarket as Darren Walker brought up, might not be as uh, attuned to the idea that to others it might be seen as a threat of, uh, of displacement. And the only way to, um, to get to that point would really be to get out a little bit of our own uh, investor echo chambers and uh, engage more with, uh, um, with other folks within communities that are being affected by these decisions. Um, there are a lot of opportunities where investors also can join in in a, uh, in a listening um, kind of form. So as I mentioned before, yesterday there was this uh, fantastic webinar um, uh, on the Invest Divest perspective of the Vision for Black Lives. Uh, and I believe that's an ongoing monthly series. Uh, you can find more information on that on the Movement for Black Lives. Um, and one of the things that came up yesterday that I want to highlight at the cost of perhaps seeming a little self-serving on it is the, um, is the need for some of the uh, perhaps almost capacity building and investment readiness for the communities that are willing to engage in this finance conversation. Uh, we put together every year the Transform Finance Institute for Social Justice Leaders, which is an effort to say, uh, yes, finance permeates 
a lot of the social justice out outcomes that we want to see. Uh, financials are pretty much everywhere. And uh, let's see how it can be uh, used really or changed as a tool for communities to be um, to be empowered to join into these uh, into these conversations. Um, now uh, let me see if uh, if Lori is still on the line. Uh, Lori, I will unmute you, and I would love to call on you if you could share with us for a second. Um, what uh, what your experience has been and what some of your perspectives might be on uh, how as a foundation you have been uh, looking at integrating uh, the issues of um, uh, of racial justice with your investment analysis. I see you're on, if you could unmute yourself. Hello. Hi, Lori. There you are. Hi. Sorry, I, I actually my I'm on an iPad and it went dead for a moment, so I apologize. Um, I didn't hear you say my name. Um, so uh, just to say a little bit about Hazen Foundation's approach on this issue. So we are um, a racial justice funder, um, an endowed foundation, and have. Um, been thinking a lot over the years about how we use our capital um, to to advance our mission goals. So the way we think about it, right, is that there's there is this um, long continuum from grants, which are you know some people think of as investments with zero percent return, uh, on up through market rate investments. And um, on the grant side, we're pretty clear on how we pursue these issues. We've I think done some pretty good work on thinking about what our strategy and how we support that work. There's direct investments, which could be the kind of things like community land trusts, uh, some kinds of uh, CDFIs, a variety of other kinds of direct investments in work that um, supports communities of color. Um, and then shareholder engagement is something that is kind of newer and is developing in some of the work uh, that Andrea mentioned in terms of prison reform might be an example. Um, how do you engage with corporations around issues like fair chance hiring and other kinds of ways that they uh, it might be financial institutions that are providing support for for-profit prisons and capital investments, et cetera. Um, and then there's um, how we think about our uh, our got our actual corpus and how it is actually invested. And that's become, frankly, a little bit more difficult to figure out. We've developed what I think are some very good um, ESG guidelines in this area, but the implementation of those guidelines has is difficult, frankly. Um, we know how to do um, a lot of uh, climate uh, investing guidelines, how to implement those. Um, fossil fuel divestment is obviously something a lot of us know about, but short of the, the obvious divesting from, for example, for-profit prisons, when you think about how to use equity um, for good rather than bad, as uh, Rashad and Kathy have been saying, um, what does that mean? What are the measures? What are the available data sets that you look to? How does that play out in other asset classes? And um, frankly, that's been a struggle um, and one that, that you know, we, uh, 
would love other people's help in thinking through. Um, I'd also, at some point, if anybody wants, be happy to share how we write about it in our guidelines, what we're trying to do. Um, and if you have ideas about implementation, that would be fabulous. <laughs> I, I hate to say I, we haven't figured it out, but we haven't. Thank you, Laurie. And this was Laurie Bettler from the Hazen Foundation. And um, again, perhaps uh, at the cost of sounding self-serving for, for, for our organizational work, um, the, the issues that Laurie brought up in terms of how to operationalize some of these uh, guidelines are very much at the core of this uh, project that we've now mentioned a couple of times around seeing where race shows up in each asset class and how one could go um, about improving those uh, improving those practices. So looking very concretely at what investors uh, um, well, uh, what investors can do uh, in terms of finding opportunities, they're not just the small direct ones, uh, and um, uh, but but they could go across. In the case of foundations, their entire corpus. Uh, um, one other thing that uh, came up, and maybe that way I can turn it back to um, I can turn it back to you, Kathy and Rashad, is uh, how can investors keep in touch with the movement for Black Lives uh, and, in general, build more alliances beyond the uh, beyond the learning opportunities that we've talked about. of engaging. Um, I know, think you were on mute, Kathy, if you don't mind starting oh. over. Okay, can you hear me now? Yeah. Sorry. Um, maybe Rashad was on mute too because I was asking him when no one heard me. Are you there, Rashad? Did you want to take a shot or do you want me to jump? I can jump in after you since you already started talking. All right. All right. I had asked you, but I was on mute so nobody heard me. Anyway. The, I mean, I think there's two ways to think about it. There's sort of very targeted ways to think about it and sort of broad ways to think about it. I think the broad ways to think about it is really learning about um, the different efforts around the vision for Black Lives and the movement for Black Lives by showing up, right? It's as you suggested, showing up on those webinars, showing up when there are public events, showing up where there are convenings, getting to know people, understanding what the thinking is, getting on the various kind of announcements and just getting to know that space. That, but then there are, I think, more targeted opportunities, and that's where I might, you know, dump a little bit more back on you, Andrea, at the uh, risk of making you self-serving. Uh, I think that there are, you know, you do need to work with intermediaries uh, like Transform Finance to figure out where there might be specific opportunities, uh, to understand where there might be sort of more concrete targeted relationship building that can be developed to lead to uh, more particular outcomes around investments. I mean, I do think that's where intermediaries play a useful role, and I would encourage people to, to sort of, if you have thoughts and ideas around that, to reach out to Transform Finance, and Andrea will reach out to several of us, and together we'll figure out who to put together in conversation. Rashad, do you want to add anything? Yeah, adding to that, um, Quite simply, you can just really think about it, approaching things from just a very, there's a very high level way to approach things, which is trying to, trying to like um, make context between the policy makers 
in the, the, the movement for black lives. Like, as you can see from all these slides that there's an entire like table that's set, that's just working on like the policy aspects of things is policy.m4bl.org. But then there's very like, you have to realize that this movement is a very decentralized movement. And because of the broad um, strokes that all these different areas that we're, we're targeting, it very much depends on what part of the country you're in, what chapter of a, of a Black Lives Matter or a BYP 100 is working on what particular issue and becoming, starting to learn about, you know, where are you kind of centered at geographically speaking? Where do you have the most, um, where can you possibly make the most impact and then learning about what local efforts are being done so then you can kind of connect that to um, like the, the broader thing, like as, like as it relates to Detroit, you know, BYP 100 just released, just, just started our new campaign on, on equitable development. Like that's literally like the center of, the center of like the conversation. So making like efforts to, you know, not only just see like the whole high level and um, analysis and the big people like at, at the, at the top quote unquote, but looking at really what, what are the local efforts going on and what, piece of the vision are they tackling and how do you would like to really like interface with that fantastic thank you both let's try experimentally to see if uh, um if i unmute everybody what happens it might be a disaster so uh but i want to give the people on the phone the opportunity to chime in as well if they'd like so if you're doing something crazy mute yourself because i'm gonna be unmuting you all on on my end all right and if you'd like to take it away on the phone wow well thank you for that great taking <laughs> i'm excited that uh the phone didn't blow up. Uh, this is Morgan Simon. Thank you both so much for being here. Um, I, I just wanted to note, um, I think sometimes in showing up, um, whether activist conferences or circles, and you know, even if it's just as simple as introductions and someone asks, what do you do, um, sometimes saying that you're an investor um, can, can certainly raise some eyebrows, given that you know, the majority of the way the investment world works is really counter um, to, to community interests. Um, and I'm just curious of, in the context of people thinking about bridge building, what are some of the ways that people can, um, whether it's leading in a positive way or kind of try to um, kind of connect in a way that um, will seem a little more hospitable than an investor title can usually imply? Rashad, do you want to answer first? I mean, I, I'm a lawyer, man. Yeah, that doesn't help sometimes either, but. <laughs> that's an interesting question. Um, like, in my experience with organizing, like, situations like that haven't really, like, come up. So it's hard to, like, give, like, draw, like, direct examples. But I think, like, ultimately, you shouldn't really, you shouldn't really be, like, focused so much on, on, on trying to like give it from the angle of like, you know, what can I like, what can I do to really help until you really have like, like made sure that you're like a very like, you know, well abreast on like, on the community and like in the issues. And then maybe, and then maybe then like um, moving on forward into like how you can help. I feel like, I think we have like, there's, there's there is like a lot of level of aversion because 
not only like, you know, obviously the investor title has that level of like, well, you're probably doing things that are, that are directly against what I'm doing, but also the type of savior kind of complex that I feel that can kind of permeate that, that space too. So also like focusing, not really like trying to like focus the conversation so much, at least within the initial like entry point of like, you know, what can you do, but rather like focusing on like, say like what are actually are the issues. So that's all I can say about that. Yeah, and all I was going to add is I, I actually think it is always better to just be, you know, authentically who you are, right? And and just to, to piggyback on Rashad to say, to come into a space and say, I'm an investor, don't know quite how I fit into this, but I'm interested in what you're doing and I want to learn, is it definitely would be probably far better received than coming in and saying, I have a solution or I think I can help you, right? It's the width and not for orientation. Less, it, I think that's more important than where you happen to sit in the world in any particular moment. And I, I do think it's important to be sort of frank and upfront with people about who you are and, and you know, what informs your perspective. Super helpful. Thank you. Wonderful. So uh, we will uh, um, we can share with you the contact information for Rashad and uh, and Kathy and here is a slide for Kathy. So it's Kathy at Nesri N E S R I dot O R G. If you would like to get in touch or feel free to come, of course, through um, uh, through Transform Finance and my contact information is Andrea at transformfinance.org. And uh, I would like to conclude this by saying, again, this is a starting point from a perspective for a very, very long path of work, one that can't happen fast enough, but also has to happen at its own uh, pace. So we really view it as a, a relationship building opportunity, as a, a learning opportunity on both sides, as a way of building this bridge. And to the extent that we can find ways to to start moving capital progressively from the bad, as Kathy was framing it, towards the uh, towards the good and towards the best, but but doing so again within a, uh, with an understanding that it's more than just moving capital. It's really understanding the roles that that we all play and how we can. Uh, uh, forge some uh, some relationships and some ways of working together that can be uh, a lot more equitable and a lot more supportive uh, for the movement for black lives and for other social justice movements that are doing a lot of the work that is at the core of the vision for the world that we all have. So thank you, Kathy, and uh, thank you, Rashad. Thank you to all who joined us today. If there's any last words that you wanted to say, please go ahead. Oh, Morgan, was that you? Uh, no. Okay. Uh, and um, I last words to just thank you, Andrea, for putting this together. Great. Thank you very much. I really appreciate it. It was super informative, very, very helpful. And I look forward for all of us to continue um, continue working on this. Uh, Rasha, do you uh, can you share your email over the um, uh, over the line now, and then we can also share it by by email to the participants. Sure. Do you want me to just uh, type my email address? Would that be sufficient, or? Oh no, just say it out loud. Oh sure. So. Um, you can reach me um, just like my last name, Buni, so B-U-N-I, at 
um, umich, U-M-I-C-H dot E-D-U. So again, B-U-N-I at U-M-I-C-H dot E-D-U. Wonderful. Thank you so much. And again, for anybody interested in the uh, work of the Transform Finance Investor Network, please feel free to, to reach out to me. And I look forward to seeing you in a few weeks when uh, we'll be talking about uh, uh, some alternative financing models. All right. Thank you very much, everyone. Take care.